Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in German Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm Craig Cervillo, host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Carol Fink about her excellent new book, West Germany and Israel, Foreign Relations, Domestic Politics, and the Cold War, 1965 to 1974. Dr. Fink, hello, and welcome to the show. Hello, Craig. Um, It's a pleasure to have you this morning. Um, Just briefly, but uh, before we begin talking about your new book, I just want the listeners to know that, that Dr. Fink has written many books, uh, excellent books about the Cold War. Um, and so this is just another book in, in a, a series of books about the Cold War um, and in a fascinating and underexplored topic. So, Dr. Fink, can you start by telling us how you came to the idea to write this book? Okay. This book began with a paradox. Quite some time ago, I co-organized an international conference on the global year 1968, and the changes that were wrought in this international and national scene, as well as in the world's societies and cultures. But when I turned to a prominent Israeli historian, he declined to take part in the conference, saying somewhat bluntly, Israel had no 1968. We had 1967. What did this mean? Of course, he was referring to the impact of his country's overwhelming victory in the June 1967 war, a victory that had tripled its size and changed the country, the Middle East, and the entire world. It also meant what we loosely call the 1968 movement to replace the bipolar Cold War world with anti-militarism, anti-colonialism, with more democracy and human rights. This movement that had swept the world from Berkeley to Prague to Tokyo, that this movement had bypassed in Israel, which was exalting and absorbing its huge and unexpected victory. True, my research later uncovered that there were a handful of Israeli 68ers at this time. But this renowned historian statement planted the seeds of the book and how his country trod a new path internally and internationally that diverged from the movements that had transformed the Cold War world in the 1960s. As a lifelong German historian, I decided to focus specifically on how this difference was manifested in a key political configuration, the fraught relationship between West Germany and Israel during the nine years of their formal ties between 1965 and 1974. Now, this research took many years. I worked in dozens of archives in the U.S. and abroad. I examined almost all the existing literature. Each year as the archives opened, new archives and new documents and new research was published, the project grew richer. Finally, after finishing a book on the Cold War and then completing a second edition, 
I'm publishing a small book of my essays on the craft of international history. It was time to finish this very long time project. And so now it has been done. So, so this book is, uh, is, wasn't something that was new for you. This is something you've been working on for a long time. For a very long time, yes. Yes, interspersed with a whole lot of other uh, projects that had to be finished, uh, with teaching, with research. And you do know, of course, that very often archives are very slow to open up their records, uh, especially for the 1970s. Some of these have not yet been open. And so it simply took a lot of time to get this work done. Yes. Um, so this is a topic that is probably new to a lot of our listeners. Um, so if you could give some just a brief background on uh, the relationship between West Germany and Israel in, in the, sort of the early years of the Israeli state, because um, I, I just don't think it's something that a lot of people know a whole lot about. <laughs> Okay. The two countries were born a year apart in 1948 and 1949, respectively. And their early history, the early history of Israel and West Germany was shaped by the Cold War. Both were frontline states in the U.S.-Soviet conflict, one in the Middle East, one in Central Europe. But both of their founding periods were dominated by two elderly and extremely pragmatic statesmen, David Ben-Gurion and Conrad Adenauer. Both men were born in the 19th century. They had witnessed the two world wars and the long struggle between capitalism and communism that led to the Cold War. And both were well positioned to open and navigate the new international relations that occurred after World War II. Now, to be sure, both Ben-Gurion and Adenauer were well aware of the long historical tie between their two people and the shadow of the Holocaust. They both were intent on building a future based on new realities. And so after several years of silence, the Israeli-West German relationship began officially in 1952 with the signing of an unprecedented agreement, a restitution agreement, not reparations, restitution agreement between the two countries. Bonn, the Bonn government, agreed to pay 3.5 billion Deutschmarks to the state of Israel for the crimes of the Third Reich. And in a separate arrangement, it also committed to making payments to individual Holocaust survivors in Israel and throughout the world. Now, this gesture, which was the first link between the heir to the Third Reich and the refuge of its victims, drew passionate, violent opposition on both sides. There were many Israelis who were against accepting German blood money, and they in fact besieged the Israeli parliament with great violence. There were also West Germans opposed to making sacrifices, especially to the detriment of some 12 million Germans who had been expelled from Eastern Europe and were flooding the country. Moreover, the West German government faced threats of retaliation from the Arab world, which had already become the principal source of its oil supply. And so here comes Adenauer and Ben-Gurion into the picture, who were able, through deft politics, even behind their own parties, 
to put together parliamentary coalitions to ratify this controversial agreement, and who for the next 12 years navigated a unique relationship between the two countries. It helped the Federal Republic gain legitimacy, that is when West Germany began paying reparation, restitution sorry, to Israel, and began helping Holocaust survivors. It also gained legitimacy in order to enter the Western Cold War camp as a full partner. It helped Israel to settle a half million Jews from North Africa and the Middle East, and most importantly, to build up its infrastructure, its industry, and its defense forces. Nevertheless, in this early period, there were no diplomatic ties between the two countries. It was a shadow relationship. At first, Israel said no. Adenauer offered to give diplomatic relations, but Israeli leaders thought it was simply too early to risk this in a country that had such a large percentage of Holocaust survivors. But in 1955, watching West Germany now regain its stature, Israel asked for diplomatic relations, and Adenauer said no. Adenauer said no, and the West German leadership decided no, because recognizing Israel would endanger its global competition with East Germany, would encourage the Arab countries to recognize East Germany and thus defeat the whole idea that the Bonn government had established that it was the only true and legitimate government for the German people. Instead, West Germany offered considerable benefits to Israel. One was extensive, generous, and secret development funds, which were sealed in a private meeting between Adenauer and Ben-Gurion in 1960 in the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York. But second, probably even more important, were the clandestine military uh, activities that went on between the two countries. Moreover, on the German side during the shadow period, there were small but significant acts of atonement. There were visits to Israel by church and by labor unions. There was volunteer work of young Germans on Israeli kibbutzim. Israel on its side had very little interest in expanding the ties. Economic development aid and military aid seemed to have been enough. In fact, the Israeli government openly discouraged visits to Germany by students or by anyone else, and Israeli passports during this period were stamped with the exception of Germany. There were also explosive events during this period, the most important being the Israeli capture of Adolf Eichmann in May 1960. Now, this incident, this dramatic incident of having one of the architects of the Holocaust before an Israeli court threatened to shake up the relationship. Adnau was very concerned with what Eichmann might testify, particularly about the um, remaining Nazi uh, leaders and, and bureaucrats still in the West German government. And the Israelis were duly concerned that there would be a, a shutoff or a slowdown in West German aid. 
Therefore, both leaders did their best to keep their lid on the, uh, on the trial. There were also bitter quarrels during this period over the presence of West German scientists in Egypt and over Israel's swift and merciless retaliation against several of them. There were debates over Germany's statute of limitation against Nazi war criminals that was to expire in 1965. Indeed, I guess we can look in this period between 1952 and 1965, the beginning period of my book, as years a little grayer than golden. Despite some people who've written on this period, it was really a very, very shadowy, top-down relationship managed by the two leaders, Adenauer and Ben-Gurion, that had very little effect on the public. And indeed, when both men left office, their successors were much cooler, much more pragmatic, one towards the other. Ludwig Erhard, who became chancellor in 1963, announced he saw no possibility in the near future of relations with Israel. Things were okay as they were, or not okay. But there's a big but. By the mid-1960s, the world was changing and the countries were changing. The Cold War had spread to the Third World, and the West German-Israeli relationship was bound to change. Um, it was a tense one, but it had to be worked out within the context of the realities of the 1960s. And the new leaders and the young public in both countries had to face some very, very new events. Well, I think this... Um leads us up to nice 19, 1967. Um, the Arab Israeli war then in 1967, is, is this sort of the uh, major event that sort of shifts their relationship? It certainly does, Craig. It certainly does. This war, the third Arab Israeli war in June, 1967 was epical, not only in regional, but also in world history. Although it was not unexpected, the swift and decisive outcome took the world by surprise. I mean, Israel in only six days uh, defeated three enemies, three Soviet armed enemies, Egypt, Jordan, and Syria. The UN failed to repeat its 1956 performance and create peace, and Israel now found itself in control of territories that tripled its size. Um, the, the West German reaction, the West German reaction is, of course, very important to my book. Initially, when the war broke out, when there was fear that, that these three Arab countries and th their threats to annihilate Israel might just do such, the West German public responded, raising money, holding rallies, uh, leaders of West Germany, including Foreign Minister Willy Brandt, announced that even though uh, the country was officially neutral, as it had to be, um, there was no neutrality of the heart, that Germans had a special responsibility for the safety and for the survival of Israel. And indeed, the German government sent, although they were unused, gas masks to Israel uh, to prevent against Egyptian leaders Nasser's threat 
uh, to do to Israel what he had been doing during the war in Yemen. After the war, this is when things began to change. The West German government was petrified over the results of the war. The superpowers had failed to stop it. And in fact, there'd been a moment during the war when a nuclear exchange might very well have been possible. After the war, there was a short but sharp Arab oil boycott affecting the West. And third, there was no peace. There was no peace at all. The Germans feared that at NATO's southern flank in the eastern Mediterranean, this war had threatened not only the Middle East, but also Europe and the world. Um, the German public also became mobilized. And this is interesting because up until then, except for the very far right in Germany, uh, the German public had been largely pro-Israel, especially the German left. And this changed remarkably after June 1967. When Israel did not evacuate the conquered territories, when Israel began placing settlements year by year on these territories, on the West Bank, in Gaza, in the Sinai, in the Golan Heights, uh, much of the German left rallied to the other side, to the Palestinians. Seeing in the Palestinians, as they saw in the Vietnamese, in other peoples throughout the world, in Asia, Africa, and Latin America, a people seeking their self-determination. Now it's true a large part of the German public, the churches, the labor unions, um, and others adhered to a neutral, if not positive, stance towards Israel. But generally, there was a change in 1967 when a country that, you know, of, of less than three million people had once been regarded as poor, as a dependent country, now emerged as the major military power in the Middle East. And one with the power, in fact, to affect war and peace in the world. Um, this created a change, and it marked the beginning of sources of friction between the two countries. Did it uh, change relations between other European countries or the United States? Well, yeah. One of the things that frightened the Germans was that NATO. Uh, of which it was a, a major member, was entirely split. The French, uh, under Charles de Gaulle, um, came out against the Israeli attack and castigated the results of the war. Um, only the Dutch stood up for the Israelis. But what Germany saw was a NATO divided at a crucial time and a NATO that was threatening to fall apart and a Europe without, um, without defenses without defenses. Now, for the United States at this time, uh, the U.S. Was, was bogged down in Vietnam. 67 was a violent year in Vietnam. And the leaders of the United States were a bit conflicted over both the origins of this war and the results of this war. But the most important result of all of this was that America, unlike in 1956, did not this time force an Israeli withdrawal as had happened 11 years earlier. Uh, the Johnson administration gave the Israeli government um, sanction, basically, to hold out for the kind of peace that Israel insisted on. 
which was not a withdrawal without peace, but a withdrawal that, that, that necessitated direct negotiations between the parties, which is something that the Arabs at their Khartoum meeting had, had, had uh, refused. Now, the Soviet Union, which um, has to, in some quarters been blamed for this war, was probably just as uh, confused and addled by the war and its outbreak as everyone else. Um, the Soviets suffered a very large setback with the defeat of its two clients, Egypt and Syria, and had to uh, rearm them again. The Soviet Union was not looking for this war. It was looking for a toehold in the Middle East, for bases in the Middle East. But it, too, was frightened by the, uh, the prospect of things getting out of hand. And so from the German perspective, a, a Germany that sits in the center of Europe, that fears for the safety of West Berlin, which could have been overtaken in hours, uh, this was the Cold War in its very, very worst moments. Um, all the pillars of its foreign policy, of its security, had seemed to be shattered by this war. And um, this, of course, on the official side, on the public side, there were very, very different sentiments. Um, the press, for example, which in the very beginning reported the threats against Israel, uh, in weeks later showed columns of Palestinian refugees, showed the suffering of the war. Um, and gave a very, very different picture of what the war quickly won, but now in, in very large uh, circumstances with very, very large uh, consequences might bring. Yeah, I, I want to thank you for explaining that so thoroughly. I, I, don't, I think it's a, a conflict that particularly Americans don't, don't know a whole lot about. And uh, I think you demonstrate very nicely here and in the book um, what an important world event um, the war in the Arab-Israeli War of '67 uh, was as well. Um, so let's let's jump ahead just a little bit to to 1968. Um, definitely a pivotal year in in world history. Um, so can you give us some context as to why 1968 is so important? And then we'll talk specifically about West Germany and Israeli relations, um, and in particular the sort of the several crises faced by the Israelis in '68. Okay. Um, 1968, of course, is, is, is one of these storied year moments in which we, we remember, either truly or in myth, the global demonstrations from Berkeley to Tokyo to Prague to Mexico City, a world that was mobilized for uh, many different reasons in many different places. Um, 68 was also a very violent year, particularly in Vietnam. Um, and um, this formed the context for two major crises that year for Germany and for Israel. Um, I'll start with Israel. I'll start with Israel. Um, terrorism had been a factor in the Cold War for many years. Um, U.S. planes had been hijacked fairly regularly uh, in our problems with Cuba, and there were other hijackings as well. But after the 67 war, Israel now fell uh, in danger and victimized by an upsurge of Palestinian terrorism. Uh, this was terribly important to Israel because, after all, it was a small and isolated country. 
It had a very, very, uh, it had very endangered borders, even with expansion. And it was facing an enemy that was prepared to strike both at home and abroad. Um, in July of 1968, an LL flight from Rome to Tel Aviv was hijacked and diverted to Algiers. This is, again, a pretty unknown event that had very important consequences. The Israelis found themselves alone in this situation. One of its very few planes had disappeared onto the airfield of a a country, Algeria, that was hostile to it. Um, It could not go to the UN, on which many members had no relations with Israel. Uh, The United States, again, bogged down in Vietnam, could only work quietly behind the scenes. The Palestinians had now put themselves in the very center of world attention, demanding the release of hundreds of Palestinians in Israeli jails for um, the the return of the airplane. Uh, This dragged on for almost six weeks um, until, through quiet diplomacy, Algeria finally agreed to give up the plane. The plane was released and Israel quietly released, not hundreds, but 16 Palestinians. Now, why is this incident important? It's important because the Israelis faced a movement that was a year later going to form itself into the PLO, a national movement that was demanding uh, of the world its attention, uh, that was demanding self-determination, that was prepared to fight, as I mentioned, on land, in the air, and elsewhere against Israel to fulfill its demands. And the Israelis had very few um, options as to how to retaliate to this. To be sure, ringing Israel were refugee camps in Lebanon, in Syria, on the West Bank. Um, And it could try through infiltration, through um, intelligence actions to strike at the leaders. But the Palestinian movement was spread and it was involved in cells, and, and it was led by very determined people who were ready to use violence. And by 1968, it was also reaching out, not just to China, but also to the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union wasn't quick to support Palestinian terrorism. That only came later. But the whole issue of terrorism became suddenly in 1968 a very new and a very important topic on the world agenda, as we shall see later on when we discuss Munich. So this for the Israelis. For the Germans, uh, a crisis came almost at the same time with the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia on August 21st, 22nd, 1968. West Germany had slowly been trying to make inroads into Eastern Europe. And that spring and summer, German Emissaries had gone to Prague, hoping to warm up relations between the two governments, hoping to break the barriers between Germany and its eastern neighbors. Um, The reformist government of Alexander Dubček, however, was considered a huge threat to communist solidarity, and especially to hardliners in Poland and in East Germany, especially in East Germany. And finally, in August 1968, a somewhat reluctant Soviet government under Leonid Brezhnev as secretary general 
made the decision for the invasion. The invasion was a shock. It came as a shock to the world now immersed in um, the troubles over Vietnam. It came as a shock to Washington, which deeply wanted to have a summit with the Soviets to try to end that war. It came as a shock to the young people throughout the world who had applauded the so-called Prague Spring and had hoped for liberalization of communism. It came as a shock to West Germans who now saw Soviet divisions on their borders. And it came at the end of these timid steps to get closer to communist governments. And the, the result of this, just as Israel faced a dilemma over the hijacking, West Germany faced a dilemma and had to draw several conclusions, the most important of which was the permanent or almost permanent division of Germany and Europe and the need in some way to appease the Soviet Union in order to protect Berlin, in order to bring some kind of peace to Europe. And of course, this is the germ for the next steps that Willy Brandt was going to take which we'll talk about, which was Ostpolitik. Yeah, it's a good, uh, good time to transition. Um, I, my next question was going to be, um, what is Ostpolitik for those that are not familiar? Well, Ostpolitik, Eastern policy, can actually be dated back to the building of the wall in, in um, August 1961. When the wall was built, many West Germans finally realized that the division of their country would not soon be overcome and that the path ahead would have to acknowledge partition of Europe and of Germany. This was the realistic way of doing it. Um, the the um, right-wing CDU leaders were willing to take small steps, but were still unwilling to recognize that neighbor to the east, East Germany, um, which, of course, they kept referring to as the Soviet occupation zone. The breakthrough took place after August 1968. The breakthrough came when not only did Moscow make this move, but also began signaling that it was willing to work with a West German government if it began to acknowledge the facts of the division. In October 1969, Willy Brandt, who was a socialist, a social democrat, a famed leader of the anti-Nazi resistance, the former West Berlin mayor, became chancellor. And he, with his advisor, Egan Barr, launched almost immediately on a series of almost breathtaking steps of visits to Moscow, of visits to uh, East Germany, of visits to Poland, and all of it designed to say to the Eastern world, we are ready to make peace. We are ready to recognize, one, a non-aggression pact. We will not attempt to change the 1945 borders by force. We accept the division of Germany and we want to make peace. Now, Israel <laughs> watched this um, whirlwind of German um, efforts, which were accompanied, by the way, by Willy Brandt's efforts also to restore relations with the Arab world that had been broken in 1965. 
Israel watched these efforts with a great deal of suspicion. Here was the Bonn government not only wooing Moscow, its great enemy, the holder of three million Soviet Jews, but it was also now declaring that it would conduct henceforth an even-handed policy in the Middle East towards its Arab enemies, or between its Arab enemies and Israel. Um, Israel's response was um, quick. Golda Meir, the Israeli prime minister in February of 1970, dispatched uninvited her foreign minister, Abba Ibn, to Germany to demand that Israeli-West German relations be put into a tight hold and become the, the special part of West German diplomacy. The West Germans were, of course, uh, very uh, circumspect about these demands. Even more striking, three years later, Willy Brandt became the first West German chancellor to visit Israel. And um, the results there really set the tone for the relationship as it now was going to be established. In both his public and his private talks, Brandt made it very clear that um, the once what was called special relationship would now have to be normalized. True, West Germany would continue to uh, give generous loans to Israel. There would continue to be economic ties and even, quite quietly, uh, some military ties. But Billy Brandt was now intent on setting his country in a different direction than his predecessors towards Europe, towards the world, and certainly towards Israel. In fact, one of his advisors had noted um, quite publicly that Brandt had no special feelings for Israel. Um, and can I ask a, a quick follow-up? What was the public reaction to this, this shift, um, if, if any? Did, was the general German public or Israeli public, did, did they, were they interested in this issue? Did they, did they care? They were extremely interested. If you remember when I talked about the 67 war, German, German public opinion was changing. There was, after all, a new generation growing up in Germany without a tie to the Holocaust. Uh, the young people um, now in their teens and 20s um, had um, very little knowledge of Israel except you know, what they read in, in, in the sensationalist reports from the Middle East. And Poles, beginning in the early 1970s, strongly supported an even-handed relationship. After all, West Germany was very dependent on Arab oil uh, for its prosperity. It was, after all, the third exporting power in the world. It, it was an industrial colossus, and it needed that Arab oil in order to pursue uh, its Ostpolitik and to maintain its prosperity. So German business was certainly behind this uh, policy as well. Um, the German public certainly uh, felt neutral and, and made this very clear in polls in the 1970s between the Arabs and the Israelis. While most Germans, not all, supported Willy Brandt's Ostpolitik, there were still some dieharders who thought that giving up 40,000 square miles to Poland was the wrong thing to do and that the German government's obligation was to reclaim all the lost lands. 
Most Germans supported Willy Brandt's Ostpolitik, his politics of conciliation, at least for the time being. And most Germans also began to support the new even-handed policy in the Middle East. Now, the Israeli public, on the other hand, the Israeli public, West Germany, was a very bad memory of the Nazi past. Most Israelis, and I've read a lot in the press, were impassive towards Germany. In 1971, there was a misguided German cultural week during which there were sporadic riots. The the, uh, Israelis were not interested in celebrating German culture. Um, The Israeli literati did read German books and Israeli culture was spread throughout Israel and its universities and its courts and in other places. But Israelis in general looked more to the United States, which by the early 1970s was its principal military, economic, and diplomatic benefactor, especially during the Nixon administration, and especially under um, Henry Kissinger as his national security advisor and then as his secretary of state. Yeah, uh, Brunt's visit uh, was interesting to the Israelis, was, was of interest historically and in other ways. But German, Germany and German figures were not terribly important. The, the relationship, again, as I mentioned earlier, was top down. As long as the Germans sent arms, some uh, provided loans, uh, was sending very good quality appliances and cars to Israel, that was about the limit of Israeli interest in Germany. Hmm. Um, so now let's let's move up a little bit to, to 1972 um, and the Munich Olympics. This uh, holds a prominent place in your book. Um, if you could please just give us a little context as to why 1972 is such an important year in your story, and then we'll we'll talk specifically about the hostage crisis. Okay, let's roll back a little. Since 1956, the, the Melbourne Olympics, the Olympics had become an, an important international site, not only for sport, but also for politics. And this, this, this was true repeatedly um, in 68, in, in Mexico, and certainly in 1972, where you had now the whole world coming to Germany for the first time since the Nazi time. And for the Germans, um, hosting the Olympics, especially in Munich, was terribly important. For Israel, too, this was important because by 1972, Israel had become a pretty isolated country. Um, A lot of countries in the third world had broken relations. This was beginning to cascade in Africa. And coming to the Olympics for Israel was, was, was a significant place to raise the flag, to be part of something large, to be in the heart of Europe. So there was this political component. The problem of this Olympics, as as I've mentioned in in my book, were the security lapses and the peculiarity of the federal constitution. Uh, The West Germans wanted these Olympics (laughs) not to look at all like the Nazi ones, and therefore security was pretty uh, light. Second, because of the federal constitution, security was in the hands of Bavaria and not in the part of the federal government, which made quick and decisive action at the crunch time very, very difficult. Um, 
world leaders came to the Munich Olympics, but also it was heavily televised. Uh, the cameras were on all the time, and that was going to make this also one of the um, major international spectacles of the time. Um, and so how did, so the security lapses, you mentioned those, is, is that primarily responsible for the hostage, you know, how the hostage crisis unfolded? Um, if they had tighter measures, <laughs> could have worked out a little differently? Well, there was, there, were, there was no barbed wire. There were no walls around the, um, the, the Olympic village on the Canolistrasse. I mean, it was very, very easy for the Palestinians to jump over the wall and come in. Nobody was really watching. But, but blame on the other side. The Israelis uh, had won, accepted the German um, um, way of being, had not asked for extra security, had not sent extra security with their athletes, had basically been caught napping. And they admitted that afterwards. Um, both sides were, were equally responsible. Maybe the Israelis more given the fact that there was so much terrorism by 1972, there, that, there, that there had been so many incidents. For Israel to have sent off an Olympic team without adequate guards is probably a fault as um, well. And how did, if um, give our listeners who may not be ultimately familiar with this, how, how did the, the crisis turn out? Well, it turned out badly, of course. Um, the Palestinians, the, the Black September group had carefully planned this operation. They scaled the wall. They murdered two Israeli athletes and took nine hostage. The Germans were in a horrible situation, not wanting to stop the games, not being able to figure out how to storm the house and free the hostage without getting everybody killed. Uh, they finally agreed to allow the hostage takers and hostages to go to a military airport outside of Munich where they thought they could um, have an armed rescue. The problems were legion, one of which was that there were eight Palestinians, eight well-armed Palestinians, and nine Israelis. Um, the sharpshooters that were placed in the airport were insufficiently trained and probably not ready to shoot. Um, the uh, help did not come soon enough. Um, the Israelis who offered to help in the operation were turned down by the German government. Um, some blame has been put on Arab governments. The Palestinians had asked for free passage to Egypt, and Willy Brandt had asked uh, the new Egyptian leader, Anwar Sadat, for his guarantee and help, which Sadat had refused to give. There's blame to establish for all sides. But the end result was the murder of all eight Israeli captives, of all Israeli captives, of nine Israeli captives, sorry, of the nine captives, the capture of all but three of the Palestinians, who were, by the way, later released in another hijacking attempt a month later, and fury on the side of the Israelis, fury on the side of, um, of most of the world, actually, at this disruption, at these murders, at, this dis the, at, at what had happened at the Olympic Games, but also a very, very unpleasant denouement. In December of 1972, the UN took up the issue of terrorism 
only basically to do nothing. Um, a, a U.S. and Western-sponsored resolution to get serious about this was blocked when the Soviet Union and its allies and the Arab countries simply insisted that instead of trying to understand and try to block this form of terrorism, that the U.N. had better look at the causes of terrorism, at basically the national claims of these terrorists. And so nothing was done and no concerted international action took place that year, or even afterwards for that matter. Uh, the Israelis, the Israelis uh, weighed their options towards Germany um, after the last captive Palestinians were released, but really there was nothing that they could do. Billy Brandt emerged from this, indeed rather tarnished, but in November 1972, he handily won national elections. Um, he was now um, totally in charge of the West German government. Um, he still had promised to visit Israel, and the Israelis could not, in fact, cancel the visit without losing everything. And so if, 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 if one wants to count this, music, Munich was a devastating setback for the Israelis, nationally, internationally, and in all kinds of ways, although it certainly was not a moral victory for the sure. Germans. Um, and, and so how did this, this crisis spill into 1973 and sort of take us up to the fourth um, Arab-Israeli war? Uh, yeah, well, 1973 was again a war anticipated and not stopped, and not stopped. Anwar Sadat had repeatedly warned uh, of his frustration. He wanted to liberate the Sinai and uh, sent emissaries to all the great powers, including uh, the Soviet Union, the United States, all over Europe, and even to West Germany to try to get help. And um, when there was no response, in an alliance with Syria, um, Egypt and Syria attacked Israel uh, in October 1973 and in an effort to recapture some of the territory and move Israel to come to the negotiating table. Now, the part of this war that, that, that's really quite puzzling is that the Israelis had been warned repeatedly, even by the Soviets, but they were poorly prepared. It's not just that it was the eve of the holiest day of the year. Um, the Israeli government feared, and, and some of this blame can be put on Golda Meir, probably more than some, uh, they didn't want to start another preemptive war. But Israel failed to call up the reserves, and in the first hours of the October war, there were devastating losses uh, along the Suez Canal and in the Golan Heights. Reinforcements came, and Nixon, who was by the way, in the throes of Watergate agony, but Nixon set up an unprecedented airlift and sent the supplies that were able to replenish the Israeli stores and to enable Israel to, um, to reconquer much of the lost territory. But the cost was, of course, that the United States now took charge under the aegis of Henry Kissinger for making the arrangements which were going eventually to lead to disengagement agreements that the U.S. managed with uh, his between Israel, Egypt, and Syria, and some of these arrangements also involved in an unprecedented way actual Israeli withdrawals. 
That was not the only bitter pill that the Israeli government had to swallow. Germany again declared neutrality, and this time was firmly neutral, stood side by side with its European allies, and in the midst of the war, just as the Israeli um, the Israelis began to um, basically to hit back, the German government stopped um, the a dispatch of arms from Bremerhaven uh, from NATO stores stopped them from going to Israel. Uh, which not only created fury in Israel, but also in Washington. Um, the, the German government was once more deeply upset by a war that could and should have been prevented. This time under Willy Brandt, the German government, as I mentioned, clung closely to its European allies, the European economic community, which now included Britain. The European economic community, which was badly hurt by the Arab oil boycott, immediately reached out to the Arab countries and launched a dialogue. Um, the Israelis saw in all of this very great signs of German perfidy, not neutrality, but perfidy. And, and one, of the, one of the signs of this was when in December of 1973, when David Ben-Gurion died, the Germans sent an extremely low-level uh, delegation to the funeral. Israel felt deserted by Bonn. And, and the German government, the West German government, was also in its way deeply concerned about the way the Israelis had behaved over the last years, refusing uh, Sadat's entreaties to negotiate, refusing to... Um, to withdraw from any of the occupied territories, and now falling almost like a vassal under the control of the United States. Bypassing the United Nations, Kissinger basically ran the negotiations thereafter. So in a way to summarize your book, um, how would you sum up West German-Israeli relations during the sort of the period that your book spans? Um, what are some of the major takeaways? Well, you know, the book is about change. The book is about a fundamental change that took place between two countries um, over these nine years. Now, but it's got to be placed in a context. You know, the context is the Cold War. The context is the U.S.-Soviet sparring, Um especially over what detente was and where it was going to take place and why it didn't happen in the Middle East. It's also a relationship that was altered by the beginnings of a united Europe. When Europe expands to nine, these are the seeds for the growth of what would eventually become uh, the European Union. It's also change that took place at a time of tremendous ferment in, in the non-Western world. Um, it's not the principal relationship for either country. And that's certainly the case. Both countries were heavily dependent on the United States. And with the advent of Willy Brandt, the Soviet Union becomes a very important partner for West Germany. But it's a relationship that has very powerful historical dimensions between the two people that you know can never be put out of mind. Um, not to mention also uh, a more than a thousand year German 
Jewish relationship that goes back quite far and that touches both people. Now, with change, one can also um, think about continuity. Um, despite the thorny moments, despite the disappointments, despite the friction, the relationship survived, in, even in altered form. Um, it survived because of the heavy legacy of the past. It survived because of the very normality that diplomatic relationships establish. You know, all those negotiations over aid, over the military, all those visits, however ritualized they were, um, create a kind of um, day-to-day reality between the two countries, whether it's parliamentary delegations or industrial trade fairs or sending the Israel Philharmonic to Berlin where, you know, their encore is the Hatikva. Um, the growing number of books that are translated and television shows that are shown. In these nine years, a certain bedrock is established between the two countries that lasts till this day. Um, and is there one or two things that you would like people listening to this podcast or who have read your book uh, to take away from it when they're finished? Well, yeah, I think that, first of all, leaders count. Leaders count. You know, certainly Adnauer and Ben-Gurion counted, but so did Willy Brandt and Golda Meir. The, the, these are two towering personalities, and one could have loved to have been in the room as they met several times and exchanged not pleasantries, but also a few very harsh words. Personalities count, but so, uh, so do ideas. And in both cases, what we're seeing in the two countries are two very clashing ideas. Israel was dominated, and still is, by the imperative of its security, by the sense of being a beleaguered small country uh, in an embattled region in an often not sympathetic world. West Germany during this period had a completely transformed vision of its security. Under Brandt, it moved in an entirely different direction. One might say that it was more a question of renunciation, of seeing peace uh, for Germany and for Europe and of security by, um, by moving away from the past, by seeking uh, new solutions to old problems. Uh, Billy Brandt did an incredible balancing act, not only with Moscow and with, with Israel and the Arabs, but also with France and with England and with other countries. Uh, and, and it's something we can even see to this day, this enigma that's Germany, what they used to say, the economic giant and the puny political entity. But it has something going there because Germany facing its Nazi past uh, made some very important decisions after 1967 about the direction that its country needed to go in. Uh, well, I definitely want to thank you for coming on the show to talk about this book. Um, I, I can't recommend this book enough to our listeners. It's, it's fascinating. Um, it's, it definitely digs really deep into the, the political uh, situation of these two countries and, and the world and the Cold War. So if you're interested in any, in West Germany, 
Israeli history, the Cold War. This is definitely a, a book for you. Uh, uh, Dr. Fink, before I let you go, I want to ask uh, one final question. Um, now that this book is done, uh, what are you working on now? Oh, well, I've started a new project, which I call The Unexpected Arrivals. Between 1972 and 1988, some several thousand Soviet Jews made their way to West Germany, a practically unknown incident, much, much less known than the huge wave that came after 1990. This occurred in two streams. Um, Some Soviet Jews left Israel before and after the 1973 war, and some of them after 1973, when the refugee camp in Schonau was closed, uh, went directly to West Germany, choosing West Germany over the United States or other destinations. Now, why did they come? (laughs) How did they come? Who were they? How is it possible that the Soviet Jews made their way primarily to West Berlin, but also to other parts of, of West Germany, to the land of the perpetrators, where they, during the next 15, 16 years, replenished a tiny and dying West German Jewish community. What were the reactions I'm finding out? And they were very confused and very erratic of West German cities and states and the federal government. And it was a very, very complicated story about how to deal with these people, many of whom actually arrived illegally or not with the proper papers. Um, It's a fascinating story to me because it fits in to some extent with our interest in migration. It fits in, of course, with the Cold War because the the Soviet Union kept opening and closing the spigot during this year, these years to emigration, depending on conditions inside and outside. And finally, it, it fills my interest in the history of West Germany because this, after all, was a country that did not define itself as an immigration state. It defined itself as a country of Germans. And suddenly, with the arrival of these Soviet Jews and the arrival of so many other asylum seekers in this period, as well as the large masses of foreign workers that had assembled in Germany, some very fundamental questions had to be addressed by West Germany in the last decade or so of the Cold War. So I'm finding this a fascinating subject that I'm, I'm very keen to pursue. Well, it sounds fascinating and uh, no pressure, but when you're done and it's a book, um, I would love to have you back to talk about it. Um, Again, I want to thank you for being on the show today. Um, uh, the book title is West Germany and Israel, Foreign Relations, Domestic Politics, and the Cold War, 1965 to 1974. Um, I also want to thank everybody for listening today, um, and we will see you back next time.